And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still anyone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Micah, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Micah, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants, so that Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Clay. Um, I'm part of the family here at Christ Community. Uh, you'll catch on pretty quickly that I'm not from here. Uh, me and my wife are from a little slice of heaven called Mississippi in the United States. You might not be familiar with Mississippi. We have a lot of famous people from Mississippi. Uh, Oprah is from Mississippi. Elvis, born in Mississippi. Cameron Gladney, born in Mississippi. <laughs> Um, if you've seen movies like The Help and The Blind Side or read those books, they take place in Mississippi. Or maybe all you've heard about Mississippi is just when you learned how to count seconds, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Um, but that's where we're from. We moved here about a year ago, and we serve with uh, Uni Impact, the, the uni ministry that comes out of Christ community. Um, and can I just say we're really grateful, really grateful to be here. Really thankful for our church family and how you've brought us in and accepted us. And so just for me and Meryl, we're, we're really, really thankful for, for you as, as our church family. Um, I'm going to pray for, for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll hop in. Uh, God, you're good. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful that we're able to gather today. Um, 
Hey, God, if we're going to get anything out of this time, uh, we need your help, we need your guidance. So would you please do that for us? Um, yeah, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, before we hop in, quick question for you. Have you ever needed or have you ever experienced mercy and grace from someone? Now, those two words, mercy and grace, we kind of throw around a lot in a Christian church. And sometimes it's actually hard to know what they actually are defined as. Um, I'm not the smartest guy, so I just Googled it and looked it up. The uh, dictionary definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one powers to punish or harm. Grace is defined as free and unmerited favor. And so we can even kind of get those a little bit more defined, I guess. And we can say mercy is not getting something bad that we do deserve. And then grace is getting something good that we don't deserve. Right? And so have you ever needed to experience grace and mercy from someone? Funny story, when I was going into year 12, English was a big class or subject um, at my school. And um, the teacher was kind of intimidating. You really liked her if she liked you. And so day one, year 12 English, she assigns um, this, this paper. It's a two-page paper, and it's just called a how-to paper. And she just said, all you have to do is just write two pages on how to do something. So you can write about how to play basketball or how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, whatever you wanted to, she just wanted to see like what level of writing you're at. Um, and so we, we show up day two, pretty nervous because you're about to turn in your first assignment of year 12 English and asked one of my buddies, how did your, how'd your how-to paper go? Um, and he looked at me and said, is that due today? Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, it is due. And he ran to the library about 10 minutes before the paper was due. And he wrote one of the finest scholarly works to this day that I've ever seen of year 12 English. He wrote his name, his, his header, and he titled the paper, How to Fail a Paper. <laughs> Printed it, turned it in. <laughs> and uh, we started talking. We started talking that day. And we said, you know, dude, what's going to happen? Like, you know, this teacher's pretty intimidating. She's known to be like pretty, pretty hard. Is she going to show you mercy? Other people were talking about, she's going to be gracious to you. Well, she did. She showed mercy. She didn't fail him. And she was gracious. She said, you can just turn in tomorrow. She really enjoyed the, the wit and the cleverness of my friend. Um, but here's the, the thing about that story in some ways, right? My friend, you could say he earned, he earned her mercy or he earned her grace. It was pretty funny. It was, it was clever. It was a good idea. But what about the times where we don't bring anything to the table? What about the times where we don't have any leg to stand on? We have no reason, no right to receive mercy. Well, today we're actually looking at a story of a king who had the opportunity to show grace and mercy to someone who did not deserve it. And he had no reason to, see, to receive the king's grace and the king's mercy. And it's the story of Mephibosheth, just for the sake of our outline, uh, we'll, we'll be rolling through three different points. So the king initiates, um, the king lavishes, and the king transforms. And so we see right off the jump in Second uh, Samuel 9, in verse 1, David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, if you've been tracking with us, uh, a lot of these things will be familiar, but we're, we're going to do a little bit of review. And if you're not with us, this will, this will help, help make our make our story make more sense um, because we really do need to dig into some background info and also some cultural info so we can glean as much as we can from this story. So who's David? David is the king of Israel. And if you're here last week, Sam talked about that he is reigning kind of in the golden era of, of Israel, 
this will be a point in Israel's history that they will always look back to and say this was kind of the prime time of, of our kingdom, of our nation. And so David is the king, and he wants to show kindness to the house of Saul. Well, who, who is Saul? Saul was the first king of Israel, the king that came directly before David. Saul wasn't a very good king. He disobeyed God in some different ways. And so God told him, hey, your, your line will not remain on the throne. You'll be the only one of your family to be the king of Israel. And he selected, God selected David to, to reign after Saul. Saul didn't really like this. He was really concerned with his family being on the throne. And so he often tried to kill David or to harm, harm David. Um, and so that's who Saul is, the former king of Israel. And so just some cultural background info. If, if we were reading this back in the day that it was written, for David to say that he wants to show kindness to the house of Saul is crazy. Right? They would have said that doesn't make any sense because back in that day when a new king came to power, he would seek out the family of the old king and eliminate them, wipe them out, because he didn't want anyone to have a legitimate claim to his throne. And so people in that day would have said that, that David has successfully defended his kingdom from external threats, and now he needs to defend it from, from internal threats. And the thought would have been that anyone, anyone of the house of Saul would have been an enemy of the king. And instead, instead of David trying to go out and to kill his enemies, we actually see him wanting to show kindness. Well, why? He says it's for the sake of Jonathan. Well, who is Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son, the heir to Saul's throne. And so you would think that David and Jonathan didn't get along very well. Jonathan knew that David would be the king of Israel one day, um, but that's not the case. Actually, Jonathan and David became best friends. And we see this play out in 1 Samuel 20, where Jonathan um, learns that Saul is going to try and kill David, and he warns David of that. He warns David that Saul is seeking his life. And we actually see Jonathan not be primarily concerned with his own crown and his own lineage and his own plan, but we see him kind of take off his crown metaphorically and worry about his friend that he loved. And then make a covenant. In verse 15, Jonathan says to David, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so we see that the reason that David is showing grace and mercy to the house of Saul is because of what Jonathan had done for him and the relationship that they shared. And so David is seeking out someone um, to show kindness to, and he asks one of Saul's servant. We pick up in verse 3, the king said, Is there still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. One of the next cultural things we need to look at is just the fact that he was, this son of Jonathan, was crippled in his feet. So this isn't the view today, and I'm not advocating for this view, but the view in that day would have been that this is a big problem. Why? It's because most jobs back then would have been manual labor jobs, right? You would have been required to go out and to work and to lift things and carry things and move things. And if you're crippled in your feet, you actually can't go and do that. And so in order to provide, he'd have to go and work, and he can't. He's crippled in his feet. He can't do that for his family. So he didn't add any value. That was what the culture would have said. He didn't add value, but he actually detracted value. He was a cost. He was a burden, and he, and he even would have been deemed as worthless. 
And we see this play out in his whereabouts in verse 4 and 5. David asks where he is, and we learn he's at the house of Macher and Lodabar. And basically what that means is that this, this heir to Saul's throne is hiding out in a backwater town, and he's dependent on a wealthy guy to take care of him and his family. He cannot provide for himself, only further playing into the narrative that he is worthless. And so not only do we see he's an enemy of the king, but he can't do anything to restore his position or restore his throne. And in the eyes of the culture that day, he's worthless. And in verse 6, we learn his name. It's kind of a long way into the story before they say his name, but it's a hard name to say, so I'm okay with it. But we learn his name is Mephibosheth. And so names back then carried weight. I know we're kind of doing a lot of cultural homework here, but names carried weight. Your name meant something, and he had a few different names, but one of the names that he goes by is Mephibosheth, and Bosheth in Hebrew is the word for shame. So his very name, his very identity, what he is called on a day-by-day basis is just bringing out and reminding him that he has shame. But there's also, fact, there's also the fact that he has shame because he's physically disabled. Again, this is not a proper view, but the view back in that day would have been that physical disabilities were caused by sin. We see this in John 9, Jesus' disciples. They see a man born blind, and the question they ask Jesus, is it this man's sin, or is it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus says, well, neither. That's not how that works. This is for a completely different reason. It's so that God could be glorified in him. And so Jesus, what he does is he he creates that thought or corrects, not creates, corrects that thought, that line of thinking. This is way before the time of Jesus, so that was the prominent thought of the day, that someone's sin, either Mephibosheth's or his parents, or someone's sin had caused his disability. And so he has shame in his identity, and he's getting shame from the culture. And the problem with shame isn't that I've done something wrong, right? Shame is I am something wrong. There's something wrong with me. And so Mephibosheth feels this shame, and he's called to come before David. And you know he has to come in fear, right? He knows that David is probably, what everyone would have thought would be, is that he's going to eliminate Mephibosheth because he has a legitimate claim to the throne. So he comes, and he falls on his face, and he declares himself to be David's servant. And you have to think in that moment that Mephibosheth is keenly aware of his state. He would have known, I'm an enemy of the king. I'm worthless in the eyes of society. And I've been deemed as shameful. He falls on his face, and he declares himself to be David's servant. And if the story were to stop there, right, I think everyone in that day would have thought, oh, well, David just wiped him out, got rid of him. But that's not, not the case at all. A few, a few months ago, my wife and I, we had a free Saturday. We don't often have free Saturdays. So I asked Meryl, what do you want to do? And she gave one of the coolest answers she could have given. She said, I reckon it's about time we tackle Lord of the Rings extended edition movie. <laughs> Which I did not expect that to be what she said. I, Lord of the Rings was my COVID read. I tackled that. I love the movies. Um, and I, I, I turned the first movie on before she could change her mind. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we tackled the roughly 15 hours of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, which is the greatest story of all time, greatest trilogy of all time. 
I did have a beef with the movies, right? It left out my favorite quote. Uh, if, if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, I'm going to spoil it, but the movies came out like 20 years ago. The books came out decades before. I don't feel too bad about it. Um, I won't spoil everything, though. So there, these, these two guys are on a quest. It's a group of people, but it ends up being two guys on a quest to destroy this ring of power. It looks pretty bleak. It looks like it's not going to happen. It looks like they're going to die, but they escape death, and they keep going, and it looks like, hey, we might have a chance to get this done. But then they really come to the conclusion that for us to do this, we're going to die. It's over. So we're probably not going to be able to destroy it. That means like evil is going to rule and reign in the world. And even if we do destroy it, we're probably going to die. So it's bleak. But they have resolve and courage, and they end up going, destroying the ring of power, and they kind of sit down and prepare to die. And they, they kind of pass out and they end up waking up in a place where they're not really sure if they're dead or not. They're not really sure where they are, what's going on. And one of the heroes of the story, Samwise Gamgee, when Gandalf walks in the room, he looks at Gandalf and he says, it's a good quote. He says, is everything sad in the world going to come untrue? You see, he couldn't really believe that this, this, he'd accomplished the task set before him. He couldn't believe that he was now going to get to live in a world where all the bad things that had been going on were untrue. We get to see Mephibosheth. We get to see in two quick verses that everything sad for him comes untrue in this story. So it's our second point that the king lavishes, and this is taken from verses 7 and 8. And the first thing that the king lavishes is kindness. David says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And now remember, Mephibosheth is on his face before the king, knowing bad things are coming. And David says, no, no, no I'm going to show you kindness. Surely Mephibosheth thought this was a joke or that he was, he was playing a trick on him because Mephibosheth actually didn't know about the relationship that David and Jonathan had. But David tells him, and for the first time he does learn why he's going to experience the king's mercy and grace. And it's because, David says, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. It doesn't go into detail, but you've got to think that he would have told him the story of what was going on. And Mephibosheth learns that this mercy and grace from the king is, is undeserved. It's not because Mephibosheth did anything. It's not because he was good enough or could, could be enough or do enough for the king, but it was because of what another had done for him. And so we, this speaks actually to Mephibosheth being an enemy of the king because that is true no longer. He goes from being an enemy to being a friend of the king. The second thing the king lavishes on Mephibosheth is riches. He says, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. So Saul, again, was a king, and, and David is giving him all the land that the former king had. This is vast amounts of land, and wealth in that day wasn't tied up in your bank account, right? It was tied up in land and possessions. And so this instantly would have made Mephibosheth rich. And so we see Mephibosheth, no longer is he considered worthless, but he's considered rich. He's able to provide for people. And then the king lavishes his love. It's easy to miss. He says, you shall eat always at my table. I think on first reading you could say, well, I guess that's a nice thing that David could do for him. Probably the five-star chef was at David's palace and not, not as good food anywhere else. But actually what David is doing there is he's inviting him in. Right, because you had to qualify to sit at the king's table. 
And the two main qualifications were to be a high-ranking military official, which we know Mephibosheth was not, or you were one of the king's sons. And so David is now at a minimum giving Mephibosheth a high honor by giving him a seat at the table. But what's more likely is that David is actually saying to Mephibosheth, I want to bring you into my family. I'm going to treat you as one of my children, as one of my sons. And so we see him moving from a place of shame to a place of honor. Another book I really like is... uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis reminded me of a quote. If you're not familiar with that story, the king, Aslan, um, four people come to Narnia, and they're, they're trying to kind of restore Narnia to what it was. And um, one, of, one of the children, they, they betray Aslan. They become a traitor to him, and they join the side of the evil witch. But Aslan works it out, where Edmund, this traitor, um, at great, at great cost to Aslan, can be brought back into the fold. He can be brought back out of the witch's clutches. And so he makes a deal, and the witch says this. The quote is this. You, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning with Aslan. He just went on looking at, the, at Aslan, the king. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Because here's what's true, right? It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your enemy says. If the king bestows honor on you, if the king begins to give you a new identity, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. Because the king's the king and there's no one higher than him. And so if the king loves me and the king cares about me, I don't have to worry about what everyone else thinks. So we see Mephibosheth moving from shame to a place of honor in the king's court. Mephibosheth's response is just humility and gratitude. Verse 8 says, He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And this isn't so much like self-deprecation, but he's, what he's saying is he's acknowledging the fact that he didn't deserve anything that David had given him. He was totally reliant on the king's mercy and the king's grace, and he's totally reliant on the work of another. So again, we see Mephibosheth in two short verses go from enemy to friend, from worthless to rich, from full of shame to full of honor, and his new identity given to him by the king. So our third and and final point is just that the king transforms. I don't have time to read all of it, But King David really does go and do everything he says. And in fact, he's such a good king, he does even more. In verses 9 and 10, we see not just land given to Mephibosheth, but actually servants given to Mephibosheth as well to go and work the land because Mephibosheth couldn't have. And so not only does he have all this wealth tied up in land, but he has his servants to work it for him and bring food in and bring things that he can sell and continue to make money and to continue to increase his wealth, a kind gift from the king. And again, like we talked about in verse 11, he's not just given a seat of honor, but he's treated as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth is fully transformed from an outsider, right, to an insider. You know, earlier I mentioned I'm not from here. I'm from that little slice of heaven called Mississippi. Um, 
And I know a lot of you aren't from Australia or aren't from Brisbane either. And you would have experienced this if you're not from here, but it's actually hard being an outsider. It's hard coming into a new place. There, there's times every single day that I'm here where I don't understand something about the culture, right? Whether it's sports or geography or Aussie phrases. You guys have so many phrases um, that are great, by the way. Love them. Uh, it's just a lot to learn. But I'm reminded every day that I'm an outsider, and that's difficult. But also in a lot of ways, there are some benefits to me being an outsider who's been brought in to Australia. Because the things that are just normal for you guys as Aussies, right, are really cool and unique and special to me. A few examples. Uh, anytime I see a Rambo lorikeet, I've actually trained myself to remain calm and collect on the outside. But the inside, I'm like, this is insane. Like, this is the craziest thing, the coolest bird ever. So rainbow lorikeets get me. Uh, jacarandas, who has purple trees? They're beautiful. There's a park right by UQ with just like a row of jacarandas. I almost feel like I'm in a Dr. Seuss book in the best way possible. We don't have purple trees where I'm from. Um, city cats. I don't even have public transportation where I'm from, and you guys got boats. Like, it's amazing. So I don't know what would happen to me if I was on a city cat looking at jacarandas and like a flock of... Rainbow lorikeets came past. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd probably just die. Um, but so there's so many benefits, right, of, of me being an outsider, right? I'm not saying that I'm better or that I'm more thankful inherently, but it's just the fact that these are new experiences for me. And it makes me really grateful and thankful to be here. I think Mephibosheth would have experienced this on a much deeper level, right? He would have always had a deep appreciation every single time he came to the king's table. Because he would have known, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here, right? And even if somebody had stopped him and said, hey, I don't, I don't think you're really supposed to be here. Like, why are you here? I think he would have said, yeah, you're right in a lot of ways. Like me, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. But there's another person named Jonathan, and he earned the right for me to be here. And the king is a good king, and he set his affections on me, and he's given me a seat at the table. So that's, that's why I'm here. And so Mephibosheth would have experienced that on a deep, deep level of being brought as an insider into the king's palace and adopted as the king as a child. So what does this story mean for us? Why is it in the Bible? I think it's true. I think it really happened. I think this is a true story. So that's part of the reason that it's there. But I think also actually points to a, a greater story, a, a grander story even, that actually you and I play a role in. And if you're anything like me, when I read a story that someone tells me that you actually get to play a role in this story, it's like, oh, like, am I like David? Am I the king? Am I nice to my enemies? It's like, no, we're not, we're not David. That's a good application. We should be nice to our, our enemies or people that we don't care for. Well, maybe I'm Jonathan. Maybe I sacrifice for another. Again, we should sacrifice for the people, but that's not the role we play in this story. You see, you and me and everyone in this room, we are Mephibosheth in this greater story. And just like the story of Mephibosheth, we need to dig a little bit deeper into this greater story to fully understand it. And the story goes like this, that God created the world and everything in it. And because he created it, he gets to rule over it as king. And he didn't just create the world, but he's a good king. He created it good, and he put measures in place so that we, we could thrive in it as humans. 
But the problem is that you and I, we rebelled. We said we know better than the king, and we know what's best for us. And we began to live as if we sat on the throne. And any subject in any kingdom that does this has committed treason. And treason is a serious offense. And you and I haven't just committed treason. We've committed cosmic spiritual treason. And the penalty for this treason is death. And so we are enemies of the king, you and I. We're actually unable to fix this problem. You see, like Mephibosheth was crippled physically, you and I are crippled spiritually. We can't do enough, we can't work enough, we can't be enough in order to earn the king's favor. And because of this, we experience shame, right? Not just I've done something wrong, but I am now, I am now something wrong. I can't live as I ought to. I can't experience the good relationship with the king that I was intended to have. But the good news is that God didn't stop the story here. He kept it going. He sends his son, Jesus, who becomes a human, and he fully submitted to God's authority. He fully lived as God intended for humans to live. And this makes him no enemy of the king, but it actually makes him an heir of the king. And Jesus was actually spiritually rich because he lived in the way that the king had told him to because it was good for him. He got to experience great communion with God, great relationship with, with the Heavenly Father, with the King. And he had high honor because of this. When describing the name given to Jesus, one of them is just the name above every other name. Think of the best name you could give someone or the highest honor you could give someone, and Jesus is above that. But yet, like Jonathan... Jesus wasn't concerned primarily with his crown, but he was concerned with the people that he loved. Philippians 2 puts it this way. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we see is, even though Jesus didn't deserve it, he took on the penalty for treason so that you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus died. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death so that we might be given what only he deserved. You see, Christ became an enemy of God on the cross so that you and I could be made God's friend. Christ became spiritually poor. He was abandoned by the Father on the cross that you and I might become spiritually rich. And Christ took on our shame so that we can be given the honor of being adopted as God's children. And so if you will call yourself a Christian, if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with him and have submitted to him as your Lord and Savior and trust in what he's done for you, this is true of you today, and we can praise the Lord for that. We have been transformed, no longer enemies no longer poor, no longer shamed. And that is good, good news. But I actually think this story actually gives us a word of caution as well. 
Because I think, right, if we know Jesus, we, we will affirm and we will say gladly that on the day of salvation, I was totally dependent on God's mercy and God's grace. It's nothing that I do. It's nothing that I bring to the table. But if you're anything like me, right, as we begin the day-by-day the -day process of being more transformed in the character and likeness of Jesus, what we call sanctification, growing in personal holiness, we can begin to confuse that our sanctification is our qualification for our seat at the table. In order to remain at the table, in order to continue to have our seat, we need to be continually growing and continually learning. Well, that can be true in some way, but by no means is it our qualification for our seat at the table. You see, you and I, those of us who are in Jesus, we are just as dependent on God's grace and mercy today as we were on the day of salvation. Well, how does the story speak into it? Well, it's found in the last sentence of the last verse, verse of chapter 9. It says, Now he, being Mephibosheth, was lame in both his feet. You see, Mephibosheth never got better. He never got to the point where he could say, Hey, King David, you know, I can, I can go work for you now, or I can go and, and fight for you now, now, or I can go do whatever you want me to do. Mephibosheth remained lame. He remained dependent on David's grace and David's mercy each and every day. And so for those of us in Christ, what do we rest in that? What do we rest in the fact that our qualification for our seat at the table is found in Jesus Christ and the work that he's accomplished alone? And would we remember that the king is a good king? He's not sitting at the table with his arms crossed saying, what have you done for me today? Prove that you're worthy to sit at my table. He's saying that's, that was secured on the basis of another, on Jesus Christ. And I set my affection on you, and it will be on you for all of your days. And for those of us in the room who don't know Christ, who wouldn't have a relationship with him, all that has been described today is on offer to you. Everything that was given to Mephibosheth, everything that is given to those who are in Christ, is on offer for you today. You can trade your status as an enemy, as spiritually crippled, as, as shameful, and you can trade it to be a child of the king and a child of a good king. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Would today be the day that you would come to God's table? See that he is good and know that he always has a seat for you. Let me pray. God, you're good. We're thankful for who you are. God, we're thankful for this story. But we're most thankful for Jesus and through his life, death, and resurrection, what he's accomplished for us. God, would we rest in the truth of the gospel today? And will we know that there's always a seat for us at your table? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.